This is the future. Hello, I'm Edwin Rydberg, and you're listening to the Alternate Futures Podcast, where we chat with indie science fiction creators about their work, the world, and anything else in between. Today, I'm here with Jacqueline Druga. Jacqueline is an author, composer, and filmmaker. Her published works include genres of all types, but she favors apocalypse and post-apocalypse writing. Currently, many of her films can be found on Amazon Prime and YouTube. A single mother of four, she resides in a small town outside of Pittsburgh with her family. Of all her accomplishments, Jacqueline is most proud of being a grandmother. Hi, Jacqueline. Thanks for joining me today. Hi, thanks for having me. My pleasure. So I wanted to start actually with a bit of your life because you mentioned your grandchildren and your children. We seem to have quite a number of them. I do. I do. <laughs> and you also mentioned that they tend to live with you or be around you quite frequently. I have two that live with me all the time. My grandson, who is 12 now, has lived with me since birth. And then his sister came to live with us when she was born. But that was like three years later. And it's at any given time, you can find at least four at my house because they're always just being dropped off because as a, as a writer, I'm always home. So it's easy to do. Yeah. And so that doesn't, because you're very busy, you're very prolific, and you have one of the largest backlists of anyone I've interviewed so far. And uh, also being composer and filmmaker. I mean, how do you have time to fit all of this in then? Well, I can, the only thing I can't do when the kids are in my office is work on music because I, I, I put the headphones on but you know my grandson he, he told me I tend to block them out like if he's in my room he was doing something really loud and I was writing and and I said I said Aiden you have to stop I'm trying to write because then I've been doing this for 20 minutes <laughs> I never heard him until like I took a break in writing so I, I, being I'm kind of immune to children noises but I can hear if there's a danger noise so I can write when they're around, I can edit film when they're around. I just can't compose music when they're around. And, and so your, your children don't, they just see you as being home all the time. So they, they feel free to drop mm -hmm. everyone off. They don't consider your work or anything. Yeah. My daughter, my, my daughter, Veronica lives there and she works at home as well. So they just think that we're just kind of hanging out all day doing nothing. Yeah. You know? And we don't mind. We, we kind of tag team when we have babies because I have two toddler grandchildren that are actually at the house right now, they're two, and um, no, they're not twins, they just were born months apart, she has them, and we kind of tag team off on them, like, okay, your turn, mom, you know, your turn, and then four o'clock, she's done working, so, and my other daughter should be picking up her toddler any moment now, so. So, so you're, you're used to the whole grandparent thing. Oh, yeah, I, I don't want it any other way, I mean, I want to be that grandmother that that years from now when they're my age you're talking about how cool their grandmother was because i had the awesome grandmother so she taught me how to be an awesome grandmother so that's why i strive to be so as, as we've said you are a composer filmmaker and novel writer which of those three came first then um, it would be the novel writer i started writing ever since i was little always wrote short stories and i went into music in in, in my 20s and in 30s but I still wrote short stories and then somewhere a, a while ago I decided that I really really wanted to be an author that I have bins I'm, I'm talking bins of books that I wrote when I was a teenager they aren't very good one of these days I'm going to pull them out and read them and maybe even uh give them to my fans uh, as like a prize because there's so many and so many stories I wrote but once I decided I was with the second 
ex-husband at the time and he was very encouraging and we weren't real rich and he went out and got me a computer and says this is what you're going to do then do it and I felt so bad that he spent all that money on a computer that back then it was like three thousand dollars for this little crappy you know computer and I made sure I wrote on it every single night uh, so I wanted to just talk uh, touch on the uh, composing and filmmaking first and then we'll we'll get into your so your, your writing so I, I had to look on IDM it's IDMB, right? Yeah, uh, for your for your films, and there's quite a number of them there, as from what I've seen, with various credits: producer, director, writer, etc. So, how did you get involved in that? Okay, so back in 2007, I was approached about writing a script on spec, which you know, in my mind, it was for money. <laughs> it obviously wasn't, but I wrote the script, and at first, I just gave it to him, and I wasn't on set. Then I started being on set all the time. And then he asked me to write another script and he, you know, he, he was a really good filmmaker and producer and, but it was a passion for him and it looked real good, but I ended up having to babysit the main actress's son that day for the final scenes. And they ended up changing the whole end of my movie, the second movie. And, you know, at that time I was like, you know what? I can do this. I'm going to, I'm going to be a filmmaker. I'm not going to have anybody change the endings without my permission and I'll run things the way I want to run it. And I I started, I wasn't very good and, but it it just took time to learn what I was doing. And then the same thing with editing. I didn't edit my films. And then I got tired of relying on other people to do something that I should be very capable of doing. And so I started editing. I've always written music, you know, songs because I'm a singer and I'm a musician And I got tired of, no, not tired. Like my first ex-husband, I have many, is a a brilliant musician. And him and I are on really good terms. And he really helps a lot with composing and providing with music. And I just hated relying on him all the time. Like, hey, Ron, I need a piece. And so I just started fiddling with it. And it it was like, wow, this is like easy. You know, watching the movie and writing as as I watch it. So that, that really is the indie spirit, I think, isn't it? I mean, I kind of got, my path is, is is similar, not as involved as yours. I never went so like into filmmaking and stuff, but I, I started going into publishing and, and digital artwork and, and basically for the similar kind of reasons you did. It's just like, oh, that's, there's something I could, I could potentially do myself and it looks yeah. really cool. So I want to give that a try and, oh yeah, I can do this. And so, so. So do you have a crew when you film? I mean, do you have some regulars you work with? I do. I do. I have a lot of people I work with regularly. Sometimes I get tired of it though. I mean, so if you go on my YouTube channel and look at my short films, I have a lot of the same actors because I enjoy working with them. But I have, I'm fortunate that I don't burn out. Like I don't feel the burnout. Like a lot of people get tired of it and take a break. Like I filmed all through COVID. I may not have gone out on set. I found creative ways to make movies. And I made a documentary just by having people film themselves and put it together. I mean, I never stopped at all during COVID. And I think the, that was a lot of the reason to do with why our film last year did so good in the festival because I hadn't stopped, I kept going. But I know a lot of these young people, they get very discouraged. And they're like, well, I'm done. I'm going to take a break for a while. And, and I just don't. You know, I get frustrated. I just keep moving. Yeah. I mean, you must have a lot of energy and, and drive to, to do all of the things you do to be so prolific. Time management. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I was going to ask you about that, actually. What, so what is your daily time management like? I mean, to be able to write, because you said, again, you said previously that you 
write a book. So you're aiming now for 60,000 ish words because you figured that's the optimal in the marketplace. And you say that that's sort of three to six weeks for you. So that's a pretty good pace. Right. Then no, that's three, six weeks. That kind of changed when Bella came into the Kindle Bella. Are you familiar with that? Yeah, but we don't have it here, unfortunately. Yeah. I mean, like the whole month it, uh, slowed me down tremendously. And my granddaughter had said to me, you know, I can't believe you're still working on that one book, man. You know, like she's 11 and I'm like, well, I'm working on two right now. Plus I'm scoring like three different movies. She goes, why don't you just stop the one and finish it and finish the other? And, and she was absolutely right. I, I stopped the Bella and I finished my other book in three days. And, and then I finished the Bella in three days. So, but it was such a fun new routine for me. Like my normal routine would get up when I get up at my coffee and I enjoy reading the newspaper. That's like, and I always have it. I've moved on to the obituaries that I read now because I'm older, but I read the newspaper and I do all my emails and my social media, which I kind of leave running during the day. And then I start at three o'clock in the afternoon and usually I am doing editing or anything that needs to be done from three to five. And then I usually from five to seven, write something, whether it's the book I'm working on, but pre previously during the Bella, that was my Bella novel. Yeah, that was my Bella chapter. And then I get back on the computer, probably around 10 o'clock, I take a three hour break and I just, I'm researching, I'm writing until I get tired. Yeah, and that's basically every single day with the exception of Sunday and because I'm here at the church so early, and I don't go to bed till like four or five, six in the morning. I try to go to bed earlier, like at four or five on, on Saturday nights because I'm back here so early, but I'm, I'm exhausted. So I don't usually start my routine till like 10 o'clock at night. Yeah. It sounds maybe you've, you've scheduled it around the kids after all, then you wait till mm -hmm. they're both gone and then you get really into your work. And if they're in my office or around me when I'm writing, that's fine too. I mean, I can keep an eye on them. I mean, I, I don't, and I don't know any writer that does. Like if I'm writing for a six hour writing thing, my hands are not constantly, there have been times that my hands have moved for hours, but I pay a price afterwards. You, know, you get all cramped up and, and everything, but you know, during that six hours, you're up and down, you're getting a beverage, you're turning around, you're looking at somebody, you're listening to music and it's not, it's not 100% constant. Yeah. At all. I don't think. So what is your experience with Kindle Vela Bean then? First I hated it. I thought it was fun to write it. It is it, you, you know, if you do one or two a day, and I was doing one a day, and uh, at the end, I put up like six, I wrote six, like my last day, I wrote like 7,000 words, it was ridiculous, and I wrote it in like three hours, and I don't, it's because that book had been taking so long to write that I had it so planned out, and I knew where I was going with it, but when I first started, you gotta remember, when I first started, they were giving everybody 200 tokens for free, okay, and so I went to my royalty dashboard, and I made three cents, and I, oh, yeah, this three cents, you know, even though this is only taking like an hour of my time a day, three cents. And so I, I read the rules. And so once I hit the completed chapter, as long as I leave it on Bella, I can release it as a Kindle book in 30 days. And that's what I'm going to do. And right after I released the last chapter and marked the book completed, I got an email from Kent Bella that said, you know, because I had such reader engagement, I qualified for a bonus. So that made up for everything that I didn't make off of those 200 credits. Now that, now that that is an ongoing thing for the bonus, the engagement bonus, it makes me really want to do it because I'm very competitive. 
Mm. So you, you do have quite a good readership from what I understand and from what I've seen with your reviews and whatnot. Has that sort of built over time? Do you have any secrets or is it just sort of constant promotion on social media? I think I'm very accessible. I think I'm very transparent. I give a lot away for free. I mean, like, I have an open door policy and people do know that if they really want to read something of mine and hey, I've been in a position where $2.99 can break your bank account and cause you to bounce. I mean, like you want to read it, you know, but, but you can't because you don't have the money or, you know, you're, you didn't pay your KU. They know I will give them the book. I mean, I give probably, I think the last time I kept track was last year, 3,700 free books away last year. And, but I think that's in itself is a promotion. And I do it because like, I write because I love to write. And if nobody's reading my work, it, it, it loses its meaning. So I'd rather have someone read it and not make the money than have nobody read it at all. And I think that's what gets these people. I have the best readers and I, I really do. They're so dedicated, but they know that at any instance, they can reach out to me and I'll reply within like an hour. And I'm pretty good about that. And I think that's what makes people stick around. They know me personally. They have gotten to know me personally. So apart from Kindle Vela, like what kind of changes have you have you seen in the industry? Because you've been writing, you say, for 20 years. So that's quite a quite a while. Yeah. I was writing apocalypse fiction before everyone jumped on the apocalypse bandwagon. I have rejection letters from I have a thousand rejection letters, and that is not that is not a lie because I, I always said. I would stop trying to get published when I had enough rejection letters to place on the steps of the Empire State Building. And I did, 1,172. Um, and I stopped trying to get published because I was tired of getting rejected. And most of them were like, nobody wants to read about the end of the world. Nobody wants to read about this stuff. And a friend of mine had said, like in, in 2010, try KDP. You know, hey, there is a there's a niche out there for zombie books, and, and you have them, and that's how it started. What I don't like is so many series. There are so many series out there that people just now automatically assume that when you release a book, it's part of a series, and and that's not necessarily true. I had to actually put down the, in the description that my um, one book wins theirs was a standalone book because a lot of times people be hesitant to buy the first book if they think it's a series. You must have sort of just missed the Y2K apocalypse fear then come in just sort of just after that. <laughs> oh yeah, but I was, on, um, I was on Brad Meltzer decoded in 2012 for their special, this is the end episode, talking about black pox. And uh, it was a fun time. They flew me out to LA, put me up in a hotel, flew me right back. It was, it was a really nice time. But yeah, I, I was part of that craze. And I, but my books didn't sell then. Okay, you know, I was real happy with what I was making, but to make a living, that didn't really come until 2014, 2015. And that's, even then, like, I was kind of leery about not doing anything else but writing because then that relies on sales. And anybody in sales knows you can't rely on sales. Because you think with with COVID and let's say 2012, et cetera, those would be periods that might inspire people to buy apocalyptic books. But I've spoken to other writers as well, and they they don't seem to. They don't. It doesn't seem to translate at all. Maybe people get tired of hearing about it. I don't know. Dude, I was primarily, I do a lot of climate fiction and things like that and weather, but my other side of it is viruses. That is my big thing. And I tanked. I mean, when COVID came out at first, book sales were good, but then- 
come June and July of last year, nobody wanted to read anything that wanted to do with virus. Like my, my publisher in the UK was like, we're holding off on this fourth book in a zombie series simply because of COVID. And I noticed the trend has been switching lately that people are back to reading virus books again. Not many. And there's not many virus books out there now. There's, and I just got the rights back to my book, The Flu, and I posted it. And surprising me, it, it was selling and it shouldn't have been selling. It's 10 years old. But I think it's because a lot of these new readers aren't finding any new virus books. And I think that's what it is. Maybe it's a way of judging public opinion as to whether we think the pandemic is over, whether people start buying virus books again. <laughs> yeah, that's a good idea. That's what I was thinking too. I thought the same thing. Like people are, are, are buying virus books again. They're just done. You know, I think they're done. So I, I had a, I had a, quick question before we move on more into your writing was um, of your composing filmmaking and writing if you could only keep one of them which one would it be so I would keep filmmaking not that I don't love writing books because being a filmmaker can encompass everything you know and I could be creative I could put my vision out there it's hard <laughs> but I mean like Making a feature film is super hard and a lot of work. And um, we did a series that was seven episodes. I think it was 280 pages, which is 280 minutes. We did that over six weeks and that was a lot of work. And, but it's fulfilling. It really is. Yeah, I had a feeling you might say that because, of course, it does encompass everything. So on your, your I think it's your Amazon bio, it says you write humor young adult, romance, science fiction, thriller. Most of your books, if you look through your backlist, do, as you say, appear to be apocalyptic. Would you say that those other genres are incorporated into those books? No, I have I have a lot of books that aren't apocalypse. They just don't sell. I took them down for a while. I'm slowly putting them back out. But I, my one of my favorite books I've ever written, ever, is not an apocalypse book. And I still get emails to this day about how people would be in a doctor's office laughing. I mean, but it doesn't, I mean, I can't justify and I do write them still. I have several books that I have not published. Uh, spending a lot of time on something because this is my living. And don't get me wrong, I love writing a pot, but so like you said, because I can't release a comedic book or because I can't release a successful romance, I kind of incorporate, well, not the romance part, but the com comedy into my end of the world stuff. So at least people can see I have that. Yeah, my, my impression from looking through, and um, I started reading Bleak, but also um, looking through the, the synopsis, the blurbs for the other books, they didn't seem to be filled with romance too much. You got to look at, <laughs> I just, I mean, I got, I got the flu back and I took out the, the graphic sex scenes because it's not me. I don't do that sexy stuff anymore. That was back in 10, 15 years ago that I wrote this up. And when I uploaded the edited file, I uploaded the file with, with the sex scenes by accident. And I only realized that was because a reviewer called me out and went, what was she thinking? Why is this in her books? This isn't normally in her books. So I, because it was somebody that usually read me, I posted on my one group. I said, if this was you, thank you. I've now uploaded the one I want without the uh, graphic intimate scenes in it. It's just not what I write anymore. And I don't do romance at all. I did try. I did try. I have one called Jurassic Heart. And it's a, a parody romance that didn't sell. Sounds like a time travel dinosaur. It was, thing. It, was. Yeah. it was. Okay. Love amongst the dinosaurs. So, I mean, as you say, the apocalypse uh, and end of the world uh, fiction is does seem to be quite popular in general now. Maybe not specifically during COVID, but 
And I've interviewed a number of authors that have various takes on it. Yours, from my understanding, tends to be focused on a large amount on the individual surviving the, the collapse of the world. Is that an interest of yours then, more the, the individual, how you get through you know, the bad times, shall we say? Yeah, I, I always thought and one of the key to my successes was the fact that I focused on people. And at any point in the story, you will see yourself. At any point in the story, you will see your child, your mother, your friend, because I, I, that's what it's about. I mean, like, so I, the apocalypse event is background noise, okay? So you focus on small groups of individuals. Bleak is a bigger, wider thing until you get halfway through the book and then you realize it's not. Bleaker, the second book, is better than the first book, Hands Die. Because I wrote that one in like 12 days. It was awesome. It was so much fun to write. I, I couldn't stop. But I do. I, I, I find that uh, too many, uh, this is me, they focus on the downfall of society, the chaos, the turmoil, the bad people, the, the marauders, the rapists, all that stuff. That's just not stuff that I want to write. I'll leave it for them. I mean, uh, that, that's not me. I'll stick with my human nature story. And, and it usually takes, if you could take the apocalypse out, of my books, you would still have a story. So, so your love of apocalypse, I mean, sorry, apocalypse fiction, or maybe not love, but love in terms of a business side anyway. <laughs> no, I love apocalypse fiction. Okay. Did that, did that, I mean, how did that come about then? Charlton Heston. I think the first, I, the first movie I saw of his was um, Omega Man. And I just thought it was like the greatest movie ever made. And then I watched a movie called Where Have All the People Gone? And I became obsessed from a young age with trying to find every apocalypse movie. And Charlton Heston did, you know, quite a few disaster movies and things like that. So when I was like 10, I wrote a movie, I wrote a book, a story, 10 years old, called Disaster in the Liberty Tunnels. And I made a Charlton Heston type character and, and I just, I became infatuated with it, but I still am. I am always once a week Googling new movies out because I enjoy watching them. And do you know what drew you to them? Because they feel a bit like, well, I mean, currently they feel like a metaphor for, for modern times, but I, I suppose they could feel like a metaphor for any times. I mean, we all, we always feel like we're kind of, I think, you know, on that razor's edge with society and it's just going to, anytime one thing goes wrong, it could collapse. I think what draws me to it is the human spirit, the people to overcome that you're in a situation where you're not alone. You're not the only one that is facing something. You're not the only one having a loss that you've got to come together. And the triumph over the bad is what draws me to the stories. Um, I think that's why I was so blown away by the end of the movie, The Mist. It just blew me away. The movie, not the book. The book kind of, yeah. But the movie blew me away. And I think I wrote one book or two books out of them all that have like a very depressing end. And I heard about it from people. This is not you. You don't write like this. You know, you don't write depressing endings. And I don't. I mean, I don't always write the happiest of endings, but there's always hope. There's always hope. So, so kind of always the, the triumph of the human spirit over yes. the catastrophe yes. i mean just to summarize for my listeners some of the disasters you deal with uh, so i kind of because you have such a, a prolific backlist i kind of tried to summarize them a little bit into <laughs> terms of types of 
disasters, and you already mentioned sort of viral and flu and, and natural disasters as is appears to be one of your favorites as well. Oh yeah, cli-fi it's called. Like anything to do with the weather is called climate fiction, yeah. Yours are particular, I mean, I, I call it not your children's climate change yeah. <laughs> because it doesn't seem to be anthropogenic anyway. It just seems to be like the world has decided to collapse and all the systems go crazy. Is that true or, or are they more anthropogenic? Okay, like Omnicide, I, I try to be creative. Like I try to make it that there is at least one book I write a year that has never been done, ever been done. And um and I've accomplished that over the last couple of years simply because I research and history repeats. And the problem is you have people not going back far, far enough into scientific studies of the earth. What caused this collapse? What caused this extinction? And that's where I find like omnicides uh, about algae, okay? That's taken over and killed everybody. But if you look at this new news story about that couple and that family, that was on the trail. It was out there thinking it was algae that algae, algae that killed them, a poison algae. I'm like, whoa, that's what happened on Omnicide. But you gotta go back to predict what's gonna happen. So anything that new and fascinating, like was it 1037, the methane eruptions, that was all taken from the research done for the Permian extinction. And that's what they believe because of the way the rib cages expanded on the dinosaur bones that they feel that that's what caused them to die was, was methane eruptions. So that's where I got that from. I go to the past. Yeah, I mean, we do seem to get caught up in the latest trend on these things, don't we? Because I do remember in the 80s even, there was talk of the red tide and stuff, algae blooms mm-hmm. um, the shores. And then we seem to have forgotten about that. Same, same thing with, I think, acid rain and stuff. Oh, yeah. Remember how big acid rain was? Yeah. <laughs> was the thing when I was in school, but now it's not even mentioned at all. Some of your other disasters then, okay, so earthquakes, that comes under the climb of climb, climb, cli-fi, as was zombies. So you do have a zombies. You have pole shifts. Uh, uh, yeah, it was torn. Torn was pole shifts. Torn. Uh, storm. You had a, a war one. You did have a sort of human one. Was that a nuclear war? The cover suggested nuclear war. I have a couple of nuclear war books, but uh, then came war is an invasion story that one was totally i think you know maybe i need to promote that one because that one was just another human interest one you know it's 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 our city's being attacked and it dealt with dealt with these people that were on the subway trying to get out of the city and that was what it was about and uh, so i was initially going through your backlist i was a bit surprised i didn't see any sort of asteroid collision ones and then i did I did discover one that had a meteor storm so i was like okay she did it asteroid would be um was it? we who remain was the comet actually i have an asteroid young adult book coming out and in the next like two weeks and that's my young adult model you won't see that much from me that's called three days after impact and i like to i love meteors but everyone does it and i only have one volcano book too and you know, people are hammering for another volcano book. Yeah, I think I think meteors and asteroids will be a, a thing coming yeah. up in the next decade, probably. I just wish everyone would stop writing EMP books. I, I really wish they would stop writing them. I mean, everybody's writing an EMP book. I mean, all these authors I know is all EMP because they think that's the shit. But the thing is, when, when, when 20 people were writing it, yeah. But now that 100, 30, 100 300 people are writing EMP books, how much sales go down. And that's why people get tired of EMP Speaking of that, plus some of the other disasters, I was going to ask you if you're a doomsday prepper or not. I am prepared. I have a really great house in case anything happens. And we always have at least like 
three to four, I, you know, I, it was to my dismay, I needed to restock because we got flooded. And all my MREs, even though they're probably still good, I have to get all new ones and the survivor food. But yes, I always have something on hand and I have well water. So I'm, I'm pretty good. Yeah, that's one of the things living in England to you. You can't, it doesn't really pay to be a doomsday prepper too much because there's nowhere you can go. You can't, you can't bug out anywhere. <laughs> You're kind of stuck. Yeah, poor guys. You watched, uh, uh, what was the threads? Have you ever seen threads? No, I haven't seen them. Dude, it was the most brutal nuclear war movie ever made by the British. It is their answer to the day after more realistically, you have to watch it. You won't make it through it. I'll put that one down then. Yeah. Oh, so there was, yeah, there was one book I wanted to ask you about because it's, it's sort of not really in your usual vein and that's the, uh, Jesus returns one. Um, Gideon, call me Gideon. The original title of that book was my pal Christ. Okay. And it's, that book is actually, I get a lot of emails about that one. It's really, really funny. And it's where Jesus comes back to earth to see if he can make a difference. As nobody knows, he's the son of God. And he happens upon an eclectic group of people, which, you know, that he did with the apostles. And um, problem is, he loves humanity. And with all the films, all the videos, he performs a miracle that goes viral. And it isn't like people embrace him people automatically assume that he is like the antichrist and that's what the book is about so the book is hysterical and then bam on one page it turns dark it turns dark okay i won't ask any more details we'll just have to read it <laughs> but you are you are religious so was this was this a difficult book or it was just something fun for you you know the thing was i felt it's really strange i felt spiritually moved by it i mean to write it to show people what we as humans are like you know what i mean like we sit there, we go to church and, and, you know, we, we praise God, but would we believe it was God if he appeared before us, you know, would we today believe that back in the day with, with Mary? Yeah. They didn't have social media to say, Oh no, no, no. But now we have all this stuff. So there would be so many doubters, you know, and everybody's quick to be negative. So they would be quick to think it's something bad. Yeah. Twitter would go crazy with that. <laughs> I wanted to ask you one thing about, since we mentioned bleak earlier, the idea for the Androsky wormhole, where did that come from? Is that, is that based on anything in particular or? It came about from the disappearing satellite in 1992. The one that I write about is an actual satellite that disappeared. And um, they say it came back, but it never did. And they said it went through a wormhole. Originally, you're reading it. I'm not telling you anything. There's a massive twist in the book. There's a massive twist that people do not see coming. So I'm going to let you do that. But that, that came from my idea of where did that NOAA satellite go? Where did the weather satellite go? You know, we don't lose them. You know, like that. It disappeared. So I had two more quick questions before we get to the, the story part. And so I asked these of all, of all the people I interview. And so maybe particularly interesting for you. So which one of the many issues facing humanity at the moment would you be most inspired to base a story around? You probably already have based stories around <laughs> given your, given your backlist. I think probably what everyone is saying is just like the human divide, the, 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 the divide that is happening. And it's not just here. Everyone seems to think it's an America thing. It's, it's everywhere. It's every country has the same divide. 
You know, it doesn't matter whether you're, you know, a communist country or, or, or not, it's the divide is there. And I think, I think we all write about it anyhow, one way or another. Yeah. You know? Like I'm writing about a certain divide in the book that I'm writing now. So. so thinking again of these, of all these various issues we're facing, which one most concerns you and that, which one is it that you sort of hope we get right moving forward? I think what concerns me most is people have to stop being so selfish. And, but this becomes a thing as you get older, I mean, like people become so, so focused and blinded in their own views and opinions that they stop listening to others. So in my hope that those of us who do claim to listen to others, you know, like we'll be the contagion that spreads, you know, that maybe people just stop. Look, that one of the sides has to be proven wrong for this thing. You know what I mean? And it, you know, in our country, it was first Republican versus Democrat, then mask versus no mask, and then anti-vaccine versus vaccine. And then you're the anti-vaccine people saying, well, once the FDA approves it, we'll get the shot. And now it's like, oh, well, the FDA was paid off. I mean, so it doesn't stop. It doesn't, they, they found their niche, both sides on this. And, and there's got to be some give, and that's my hope that we find give. Do you think, because one of my views is that the reason we get so polarized now, okay, also maybe social media might help in that because we fall into our sort of echo chambers, but also most of the issues, both sides have valid points. So if you fall into one camp, all of a sudden you just can't accept the other camp for some reason. And that's what the problem is. But yeah, I was thinking back, you know, to 2004 when I was at a book convention and at that point in time, I was much more conservative than I am now. And I still wasn't ultra conservative. I was like middle of the ground. But the guy to my right was super liberal. And I can remember in 2004, us clashing over issues, but we didn't really fight, I mean, it, about it. So it's just been building forever. But I think you're right. Both sides have valid points. They just don't see the other side's point of view. Yeah. And, and so I'm a little bit depressed like i hope what you're saying happens and that the middle can make themselves heard after this will be something else edwin i mean like it's always something that divides and it's just the human nature you know history shows that and but i think one thing i'm very confident is the big guns all the big countries are a lot smarter than to just start war like with the other big countries so that's that's i, I think we're all smarter than that yeah it doesn't seem like a like a physical war is something right. on the horizon. Info war, maybe that kind of thing. Cyber war. Oh yeah, yeah. But I'm a little bit pessimistic that the center has a strong enough voice to be heard over the, the shouting of the two sides, basically. Maybe eventually the center will, but right now it's buried. It's yeah, buried. Yeah, feels like it. So. We're going to move on to a segment of the show I call The Revenge of the Muse. So prior to this interview, I sent you four randomly rolled story cubes that represent the categories of hero, action, setting, and science fiction element. And I asked you to prepare a short introduction to a story using those cubes as guides. Now, just for those listening at home who'd like to try their hand at this, the images uh, are available on alternatefutures.co.uk in the podcast section. And so you've uh, asked me to read the story. Yes. And then we'll discuss sort of your thought processes behind it. And you can describe the cubes. Okay. Uh, you've actually written uh, more than most people. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
<laughs> Sorry. Not a bad thing. Do you have a title for this, by the way? No, I don't. I don't because I didn't know. I don't want to give away the, the twist, you know, with the right. title. So. Okay, fair enough. I'll just start as it is then. There you go again, he said. Such a troubled man. He was smug the way he talked, stood in my room. Nightly he appeared and it was driving me insane. An unwanted visitor during stressful times. I had spoken to him before the event, and now it was just bothersome. Before it was different. I reached for my wine as I sat at my writing table. Pour another drink, why don't you? I did. I knew he said that in sarcasm, but I needed a drink. I tried to ignore him, looking at the words on the paper. Words I wrote to make a new history. My eyes lifted to the loud crack of thunder, the sound of pouring rain that pounded relentlessly against my vessel. The heavy rocking of the ship was upsetting to my stomach, and the wine helped. Why do you drink so much? he asked. I stood abruptly and walked to the window, opening the shutter. Look at it! It's the end of the world! No, it's not, he said. Think of it as a cleansing. It will stop, and eventually the waters will recede. To what? What will be left? You, your family, those on board. It took years to build this ship, I told him. Years of my life, everything I had, my reputation. You're alive. For how long? Oh, you live. You live a long... He looked at my bottle. Drunken life. At that moment, the boat rocked, and I saw it, my bottle sliding across my writing table. No! I shouted and dove for it. It was too late. It slid from the surface, crashing to the floor. Watching that happen was almost heartbreaking. I growled in my frustration. That is one less that I have now. Why didn't you grab it? He shrugged. Why do you keep coming here? Because it's almost over. Pretty soon the waters will calm. You'll find dry land. You'll live. There will be others. Just make sure you don't crash the ship, okay? Three days from now, so try to be sober. Why me, I asked. Why did he pick me? To be honest, you were where I arrived. So it could have been anyone, but you were there. You saw me, you believed me. Not at first, I told him. I was right, he winked. Listen, I know I've told you before, but it was just something we had the tech to do. We needed this planet, but it had nothing to offer. Barren of any living creatures. We need it, and this was the only way. Go back in time, warn someone of the apocalypse. He did this thing with his fingers. I didn't understand it. Curling up two fingers on both sides of his head when he said the word apocalypse. Tell them what to bring. Save that person. Save the life so it can continue, so we can inhabit here. But it's been seven minutes. You know, that's as long as I can stay. I'll bring you a replacement wine, maybe some bourbon. You might like that. As for now, good night. He vanishes as quickly as he appeared doing a sparkly disappearance, his body becoming vague and squiggly before he left. The door to my room opened and my wife rushed in. I missed him, didn't I? She asked. I heard you yelling. He was here. I nodded. And he broke my wine. This angers you? Yes, yes, woman, it does. I need it. I shall fetch you another. She rushed back to the door and paused. And remember, it is only wine. He will provide more. That's what he said. My wife smiled gently at me. Remember, you are blessed to be chosen by God. I'll be back, Noah. When she left, I sat back down at my writing desk. I needed that wine. It helped with the lies. God. It was much easier and believable to tell her God had visited me to warn me about the flood than to say a man from the future appeared. One day it would be known that the future saved the past. I wouldn't be around to see it. 
until then i'd enjoy my wine so there's a nice so the the uh, twist in that story actually reminds me of kind of the reason i left church actually when i was 12 was was basically because i thought the stories could be of characters other than supernatural characters yeah and uh you know Noah's one of my favorite characters because he was such a drunk <laughs> i like and people don't know that. And I know we, like, I was hired by this church. And so I have to, I go to these weekly meetings and, you know, they're, I'm always questioning. And what's nice about this church is they always question, you know, and, and, but I never brought up the fact that what if, you know, Noah wasn't warned by God, but warned by the future that came to this planet, realized it was flooded, nothing got left, but let's say go back in time and tell someone it's coming, you know? So it's like, that's you have to be able to question. So I thought that was fun to put a little twist on the Noah thing. So, well, actually my daughter helped me roll these, so I didn't have any bias in choosing them. But when I saw yours, I thought they fit fairly well with your <laughs> writing. <laughs> and I was quite curious to see what you're going to do. I, I saw the, like immediately the first line in the top room. I'm like, and I didn't think it's just like, wow, why is he giving me a cube of Noah? You know, Noah's Ark and the flood and like, oh, the science fiction element has to be, you know, the twist I gave. And then the tipping has to be him dropping a bottle and freaking out because he would have only brought so many bottles of wine to, to ration, you know? And we know Noah didn't ration. <laughs> right. So do you want to just walk us through the cubes? I mean, you've kind of summarized them there, but do you have them in front of you? Or? No, but I, know, I have them in mind. So, I mean, like, the, uh, the first one was was the guy in a boat. I, I saw it as a boat. That was the, the main character. And so that was Noah. And then I always go, I went down, like making a, all right. And then obviously the, the, the setting was rain. So, you know, you give me a storm, you're going to have an apocalyptic storm. So what you got, guy in a boat, an apocalyptic storm, definitely Noah. And then, but you the beaker tipping. And I'm thinking, well, you know, I'm not going to write any chemical thing here, but a beaker that looks like maybe what he drank his wine out of. And it would be on the edge of the table when maybe the boat or the ark tipped. And the science fiction element was the blue man. And uh, when we see visions of people from the future, they're always like shades of blue, you know? So I just almost like eat like a sparkly, I was going to make it an alien, but I decided to kind of make it man, but from the future. You mentioned that you had some difficulty with the, with the science fiction element. And my daughter and I both were kind of wondering what you were going to do with that because it's a little bit hard to tell what it is. Yeah, so I just made a man. What scientific human? It was. I looked at it and I saw this blue human. And I'm like, well, that's got to be alien or something electronic. And that's when I came up with someone from the future. So I think we're, we're pretty much finished the interview then. I wanted to give you a chance to let us know which projects you're working on. I imagine there's several, given given your prolific working habits. Right now, I'm editing um, My Dead World Four for my publisher in the UK, which you know, I'm giving them a shout out. Volpine, love them, love Rob and Sarah. They are the best thing that's happened to small publishing to restore my faith in publishing. So I mean, I mean, I've given up on publishers, but I love them. Um, I'm writing a book called Static, A Quiet World, and it's not what you think by the title. I am also getting ready to launch another villa, and I hope to be working on the final Eliminators five and six in September. Bleakest is October. I'm excited for Bleakest. I mean, that will be the third and final book, and it's going to be a Disney. 
that's a that's a lot of stuff coming out <laughs> when you get to the end of bleaker i'll give you a free copy of bleakest okay because you're going to want to read it that's, okay great it is better it's better than the first one and uh so where can people find you online then they can go to my website at uh, www.jacquelinedruga.com. If you just even Google me, you know, Druga author, and I come up very easily. Um, you can find me on Facebook. I have a page on Facebook. Uh, Instagram. I'm not real good on Instagram. I am always on Facebook. But yeah, look, look me up um, on my webpage. All right. Well, Jacqueline Druga, thanks very much for talking to me tonight, then. And thank you so much, Edwin, for having me. Thank you for listening. Transcripts of this and all episodes are available at alternatefutures.co.uk, as are the StoryCube images and original story openings written by my guests. If you've enjoyed this, why not share it with friends and other sci-fi fans you know? If there are any indie sci-fi creators you'd like to see featured, send me a message at podcast at alternatefutures.co.uk. Finally, if you'd like to support this podcast financially, you can do so on Subscribestar. Just search for alternate futures. There you can find extra discussions and information that hasn't made it into the final edit. And thank you once again for listening. I hope you'll join us on the next episode. This is the future. Human error. Evolution. This is the future.